Hello and welcome everybody to the Ideas Podcast. I'm back. I'm your host, Tony Aldani, and I'm here with faculty advisor and founded the Ideas Club, Daniel Lazar. And we're going to talk about something that's been kind of a long time coming. As we move into the holiday season, we want to be more introspective. And with the podcast, we've chosen to make sort of a long form edition. We have three episodes covering mental health, this being the part two of our mental health series. Last episode, Bella and I, we talked about students and their experiences with mental health and how the pandemic has affected their academic learning experience at the John F. Kennedy School. This episode, we're going to be speaking to a licensed child and adolescent psychotherapist. Now, Mr. Lazar, could you enlighten me on what exactly is going to transpire this episode? Well, first and foremost, Tony, I want to thank you for having me back on the podcast. It's always nice to get on a hot mic and to be in conversation with you. And I should say, I was actually really excited for you and Bella Winger to be in conversation with Heidi Hooper Amory. She's great. I thought y'all would have a meaningful and empathic dialogue, and I'm sure you would have, but as you made very clear to me, and Bella did too, the simple fact of the matter is, and I think this might be irony, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but y'all are just too busy with too much stuff going on to do three podcasts in three weeks. So I decided to step up to the plate and talk to Heidi myself. I hope you don't mind, by the way. No, no, I think it's great you're stepping up. And um, yeah, it's been rough. I think that though it's been quite positive overall that we recorded that last episode on mental health, it also contributed to a lot of the stress that we suffer under. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> part of the mission. And I got to tell you, man, I listened to that episode that you and Bella did really closely. And a lot of other people did, by the way, as well. It got a lot of listens. Oh, and I should say it got us a very generous donation. You want to give a little shout out while we're here? Of course. We want to give a big shout out to Natasha Senfleben for her donation to the Ideas podcast. Thank you very much, Natasha. As per usual, half of the donation is split with LSVD. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated. So any loyal listeners, if you want to show your support, please feel free to donate something over at buymeacoffee.com slash jfksideas. We are wickedly grateful for the donation of Natasha, but we are also grateful for our partners over at Bear Radio. We'd like to support one of their podcasts, Beyond Asian, Stories of the Third Culture. The third culture is what emerges at the intersection between your culture of origin and the other cultures by which you've been shaped. Beyond Asian is a place for stories of global nomads with Asian roots brought up in diversity. So, Mr. Lazar, I heard you quite enjoyed our last episode, but I really want to get into the discussion more with you. What exactly spoke to you on that one? What are you quizzing me? Because you <laughs> don't think I actually listened to it? <laughs> well, I'm just making sure. Are you a loyal listener? Uh, all right, Tony. I am indeed a loyal listener. Uh, I have no choice. Now, do I? You know I'm a fan, Tony. I'm a Tony Aldani fan. I'm a Bella Winger fan. All right, listen. What I really like is the way you and Bella engage with each other. I think there's an earnestness to it. I totally dig it. <sighs> okay, here, here. Here's the question it raised to me. I'm going to throw at you something of a hypothesis. And I just want to hear what you make of it, okay? All right, okay. And this is just, you know, I've been at that school 13 years. 
you've been around about the same, and I'm just going to throw this at you. In analyzing the culture of stress at the Kennedy School, it seems to me that parents and teachers and administrators and students, they're all players in the same game. And the game to me seems to be using stress as a status symbol. Look, there's no point in pointing fingers, and I have no intention of doing so here. But it does seem to me to be the case that the students at this school are the primary purveyors in the culture of stress that they themselves suffer from most. Look, I get it. Parents play a role. Teachers play a decisive role. The administration plays a role. The Senate plays a role. All of that's true. But it's also true, I hope you'll agree, that students seem to wear stress and anxiety as a badge of honor. I hear kids talking to each other in my classroom, talking to each other in the halls. And student A says to student B, hey, morning, how you doing? And student B is just like, oh exasperated. I got three clausures and then a presentation, or I got two presentations this week, and then next week I got three clausures and I got a concert, and I got a lacrosse tournament this week. And it's never to express that they're enjoying <laughs> any of it at all. It's not to express that they're proud of their ambition nor their accomplishments. It's merely to almost signal to their interlocutor that they're overwhelmed. And then their interlocutor, person B, will say their version of the same thing. And I just have the sense that the discussion creates this sort of spiral of negative energy where everyone's always talking about the wrong thing. Except for the fact that it's their feelings and they have these feelings and it's important to talk about the way we're feeling. Okay, I get it. Let me just dial it back a little bit, Tony. But... I have this fear that students are really driving each other down by further fostering this culture of stress. So, Tony, that's my big reflection on last week's conversation. Maybe you can support, modify, or refute my working idea. I trust you. Whatever you say, I'm just going to believe it. Well, I mean, good on you for doing so, but <laughs> I'd actually like to modify your statement just a bit and also support it. Um, you said that people wear their pain, their struggle as a badge of honor, uh, their sense of being overworked as a badge of honor. I feel like you can attribute that to society at large, not just students. If I can be a bit of an agitator, and uh, like I said in the previous episode, I have that little, little flicker of rebellion in my soul, and I'd like to poke some holes at the establishment. Yeah, please. I feel that we live in under a system that enforces that sort of behavior in every facet of work, really. And when you say there's nobody to blame, we can't point at each other, I feel like amongst students and teachers, we can't point at each other. Amongst workers, we can't point at each other. But we can point at the people who make it so that we even have to perform at this level in the first place. It shouldn't need to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. But for some reason, we have this hustle culture in our society that emphasizes working in an unhealthy way. The same way people say toxic masculinity, there's toxic work culture. 
Oh, being overworked to the point of losing sleep is not a flex. It's not a sign of success to be that overworked. It's not a sign of success to be a slave to your work. And um, in an ideal society, we'd have the option to work at our own pace and have time in the day to do other things, which as it stands currently, few of us actually do, especially people uh, my age who not only want to perform well in school, but also have enough time to allocate towards other things that are essential to who they are, that are essential to leading a healthy life. Going to the gym, for example, getting in, reading, having fun, enjoying time with other people often gets neglected because we have to focus on whatever is next, because we have to focus on the next task ahead, because there seems to be this never-ending stream of work. And then you ask the people higher up and they tell you it's the same for them. So I feel there's no way or else to point but up. Mm. If you get what I'm saying, this is just rebellious teen babble. But I feel that is really just the my perspective of looking at it. Tony, you're a wise man. I dig the cut of your jib. I totally hear where you're coming from. But I want to push back just a little bit. I'd like to try out another working theory on you just to get your feedback. Maybe there's a little devil's advocacy here, just trying to ignite a conversation. I might tiptoe into some controversy. You can tell me. I want to hypothesize that there are a lot of students at the Kennedy School who, if they so chose, could show up to class, get threes, maybe a couple fours, get a good education, mess around with their pals after school, watch Netflix, play some video games, and get nine hours of sleep a night, and graduate happy, well-adjusted kids. You know, big asterisk, of course. There's some kids who really have to work their butts off for threes and fours, and I don't want to ignore those kids at all. But there's a lot of kids at our school that work 16, 18 hours a day scrapping to get ones and twos and be world-class violinists and be great lacrosse or football players. And then they're part of the Ideas Club or MUN or NHS, and they want to have it all. And their desire to have it all, ones, twos, a social life, violin, lacrosse, MUN, and have a family life, and be hip to what's new in media, and maybe somehow sleep and eat I think the desire to have it all causes anxiety. And I just want to throw this out to you. We'll do another support, modify, or refute. Support, modify, or refute the idea that a substantial proportion of Kennedy School high school kids could show up, get threes and fours, hang out with their pals, have a nice experience, go to a good, maybe not a great university, and have a happy, rich, robust life. Take me down the peg, Tony. Tell me why this is tomfoolery. Well, to be honest, in your best efforts to ruffle some feathers, I, I actually completely agree with you. I think for the most part, just this sort of attitude of piling as much as you can onto yourself because you want to meet some sort of quota. I feel that's what it is. I, I, I don't think a high maintenance life is a successful life or a healthy life by default. I don't think that playing a more passive route and just going with as it comes 
is a better life either. But I just think that it's very personal. I feel that as it stands, if you want to be that kid who just shows up to school, gives 50% and has a great time outside, go ahead. That's fine. And when you touched on elitism, uh, especially in education, I find it so ridiculous. Education is something that's so fundamental to creating a a rich society in terms of culture and intellect um, that I feel really uh, having that sort of hierarchy when it comes to education is so silly. And um, as a society, I think one could do far more to allocate more funds to creating a more equal playing field for education, revamping the system so that it makes more sense. Because when we talk about grades, I mean, what does that mean? What did you do to earn that grade? Did you earn it? There's so much that contributes to that final test score. There's what you maybe missed. Did you have enough time that week? Do you have things in your life that play a far greater role that school is irrelevant at that point? I feel that grades, this is actually a very common saying, but I I feel it rings true. Grades are degrading. Yeah. And in the end, what you do for that grade, is it really worth it? I feel like that's something we should also leave our listeners with. I know we have a lot of students who are from both ends of the spectrum. Whatever you're doing right now, if you're content with it, I feel like that's probably the best metric to apply to it. Hey, Tony, I hope you don't mind, but could I ask you a bit of a personal question? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All right. I had the pleasure of having you as a student once. You're a high-flying kid. You're intense in class. Your writing is solid, sometimes pitch perfect. You're deeply involved in a number of student organizations. I learned just a couple hours ago that you're into filmmaking. You spin more plates than that. We don't have to tell the listeners about your whole personal life. you got a lot of things going on. You're deeply, critically engaged emotionally invested in lots of projects. You're doing it all. Now, I will say you wear it well. I should hope so. You do. I wouldn't describe you as one of those kids who has fallen prey to the culture of stress, but you've definitely fallen prey to the culture of performance, optimization. There's no downtime, so far as I could tell, in the life of Tony Aldani, well, I like the word you chose there, optimization, because um, from all the extracurriculars that you just mentioned, they're only ones I am passionate about or the ones I feel I want to do. There's so many engagements at our school, but really there's kids who do it just to do it and other kids who do it because they want to. And I feel like that's far more valuable. I feel that that will actually bring you farther because you're exploring something that you can possibly use as a skill later on. So yeah, I, I appreciate what you said about optimization a lot because that's truly what it feels like for me. Well, I'm glad to hear that you find joy in your pursuits, Tony. I say it all the time. I'm a big Tony Aldani fan and I'm real grateful that you choose to participate in this ideas project. Couldn't imagine it without you. At the same time, I legit got to run. I'm already two minutes late for this conversation with Heidi Hooper Omri. Hey, can you do me a favor? Can I 
call you back on the Zencaster in an hour or an hour and a half just for endorsements and to wrap it up? Because I know you don't have time to be there for the interview, but it would be great to catch you on the back end. Can do? Well, I guess so. <laughs> Come on, man. Am, am I on payroll? <laughs> no, and I'm not either. I guess we're stuck in the same boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hoisted by our own petards. Um, how about this, Tony? I'll just shoot you a message when I'm done with my conversation with Heidi. And if you're around and you have time, we'll wrap it up together. And if you don't have time, if it's too late, it's cool. No worries. I wish you had time to participate in the conversation with Heidi, but I know you got exams coming up. So priorities are priorities. I'll try to get you back at the end of the episode, okay? Sure thing. All right, wish me luck, man. Good luck. Thanks. Heidi Hooper Omri, welcome to the Ideas Podcast. We are very grateful to be in conversation with you. Before we dive in too deep, perhaps you might just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Heidi Hooper Omri. I had two kids that went to the Kennedy School several years ago. Both my kids started at the middle and entrance class. And then my daughter, I guess the last one that graduated was in 2017. So I am an American that ended up living in Germany. I've been here for a while, studied psychology at the TU after having done my undergraduate degree at Oberlin College in, in the United States. And as luck has it, I met my husband and stayed here and started studying psychology and had become a child psychologist for the English-speaking community here in Berlin and have been doing so for about 20 years now already. Yeah, and I should say in full disclosure, I had the pleasure of getting to know and getting to teach both of your kids. So I suppose we should just put that out as a disclaimer here. <laughs> I should tell you that our discussion with you is part of a broader discussion that we're trying to generate at the school. We are doing a series of three podcasts. The first part is students talking to students about issues of depression and anxiety, academic and otherwise. You here are the second part. And in the third part, JFKS students will be speaking with the esteemed members of the JFKS guidance department. And in addition to that, uh, we're putting out a journal, the Ideas Club is, before we go off to the Christmas break. Wow. And the journal is tentatively titled Atypical is the New Typical. And we're going to be talking about students uh, with different types of challenges. So you're like right in our wheelhouse right now. Mm -hmm. And we're super excited to hear from you. So much I want to talk to you about. But if you don't mind my asking. Go for it. Your job right now must be excruciatingly busy and challenging can I ask how you're holding up? Um, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. I must admit, I feel like I am coming on upon my my grenze. I think I've I've reached I've reached my capacity at this point. I'm usually pretty hard and pretty good at 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 working hard, but this is this year has topped them all. Literally working from eight in the morning till nine at night. And the sad thing is, Daniel. The sad thing is, working all those hours. There is still I could I could clone myself and I could get a second person to work those kinds of hours as well. It is crazy. Kids are struggling. Kids are really struggling. 
and having a very difficult time right now. And unfortunately, I'm only seeing and having contact with really a drop on a hot stove. It's nothing what I'm seeing. I'm, 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 I'm at a loss. I feel so sorry for those kids. And I know that they're, that they're really suffering. And my colleagues are, there's just not enough of us. There's just simply not enough of us. So anybody out there that's interested in psychology, go for it. We need you desperately as a little plug. <laughs> yeah, I understand. And I should say my heart's with you. I can only imagine how impossible it feels. Uh, but I'm desperately grateful that you're on your game. And I hope that you could stay on your game for as long as these times persist and beyond. Uh, I hope you're doing the things that give you some space and give you some chance to breathe so that you can be some version of your best self, <laughs> despite how impossible that must feel. So thank you. we here at Ideas are in solidarity with you. Thanks for doing what you do. Let's talk a bit about what you do and maybe you can share some lessons with our JFK community audience. One of the topics that's being discussed with increasing frequency is depression. We put out a survey to the student body about different psychological disorders and issues of anxiety, academic and otherwise. And one of the questions we asked students to respond to was, on a scale of one to five, where one is a thorough understanding and five is a weak understanding, my understanding of depression is blank. And it, it seems like about 55% of students feel like they have a good understanding of depression, 21% are in the middle, they're not so sure, and 22% admittedly have a weak understanding of depression. This is, of course, self-reports about one's knowledge, which, of course, is a little bit slippery. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Heidi, what do you wish more young people knew about depression? Well, first of all, that they realize when they are depressed. Depression can sometimes slowly creak in, or it can, um, you wake up one morning and you're depressed. And the kind that slowly creeps in is, is the most difficult to, to really notice. You, your friends or your parents might even notice it before you do. But basically, when you start realizing that it's difficult to get to school, when you have, you just really can't lift that pencil, or nothing's coming to you, can't get any work done, or you're just not even motivated to do anything, things that used to be fun just aren't fun anymore. Like, it's not even really fun to go out and meet your friends anymore, or, you know, playing around the video games just doesn't even do it anymore. You know you've got a problem. You know you've got a problem. Depression is not just a matter of feeling sad. Depression is a matter of ganging up on yourself, bullying yourself, criticizing yourself, not enjoying the things that you used to do, not being able to concentrate, and also, of course, having problems sleeping and eating. And if any of those things show up, you don't even have to have all of them. It's a, it's a sign that something's up. Something's not right. And then you got to talk to somebody. And I think that's important to know that you can talk to somebody and that you should talk to somebody. Because I think what happens a lot of times, particularly in competitive environments like the Kennedy School, as I think I heard you say one time, everybody's got too much to do. There's, a, there's, there's just so much. Everybody feels like they can't do their, their best at the moment, but they're all competing to do it. And the reality is, is when you can't do that anymore, what do you do? You're really, you're really at a loss. 
when you're not performing like you're used to performing, you start getting really worried because you start thinking, oh God, I'm gonna, it starts this whole vicious cycle of beating yourself up even more, getting more upset and more uptight and feeling even worse. So this whole cycle of not being able to do something and then not understanding why you can't do something, but you're not doing what you normally would do and you, you start beating yourself up, that just gets you into a spiral downward towards even feeling worse about yourself. And teachers often don't understand that. They tend to fuel that by thinking that kids might be lazy or making comments or just assuming that kids don't care anymore. It's depression, folks. It's, 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 you're not, it's mental illness. You may not have a, a scratchy throat or a broken leg, but you're, you're, you're not, your mental health is not in good shape. And that's what's important. That's the most important thing to know about depression is what it is, I think. Yeah, I like the way you frame that. I want to dive into it a little bit further by asking you this. Quite obviously, we live in deeply vexed times. It's an age of anxiety. We're careening from crisis to crisis. There's a lot that's making us sad. There's a lot that's making us anxious fearful, Mm -hmm. hopeless. All of this is true. And when you added up, the New York Times said a year or so ago that we're all languishing. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I want to ask is how we can differentiate feeling sad or languishing from being depressed. Yeah. The litmus test is how well are you functioning? Can you still do what you need to do? Can you still get on with your day-to-day life and do those things that you need to do and that you want to do? If that's not happening, if you can't get to school every day, for instance, or if you can't sleep through the night, or if you can't just simply get um, a homework done that you used to be able to do without any problem, that's where you're not just languishing, you are feeling depressed and you need to get some help. Yeah. Listen, there's a not insignificant portion of our student population who have been diagnosed with depression, a substantial portion that could or should be diagnosed but haven't yet. And then there's a whole bunch of kids who are really anxious and fearful. And some of that has to do, as you're keenly aware, with academic anxiety. Now, some of this academic anxiety is self-induced. Sometimes it's anxiety foisted upon them by parents and or teachers, or perhaps more broadly, this community that we've created of high-flying, high-achieving kids. It's just sort of in the water at the Kennedy School. Mm -hmm. And We could dive deep into why that is exactly, but that's not exactly the purview of this podcast. What I want to get into with you a little bit, if you're willing, is how JFKS students can cope more effectively with the academic pressures that beget academic anxieties. Mm -hmm. Excellent question. Okay. The first thing that's super important is the attitude of the kids and the school, it's not, it shouldn't be about the grade. I find that so many kids obsess about their grades and what they're going to get. They obsess that they have to get this grade 
and anything less than this isn't good enough, or I need the grades because I need to apply to college X, Y, and Z. Folks, it's not about the grades. Anybody that does any research on grades in school knows that A, they're very subjective, and B, they're nothing more than a Polaroid picture of that moment in time, that day, that hour that you were sitting there taking that test. Basically, those tests are nothing more than how much sleep did you get last night, the night before? Did you have anything for breakfast? Did you learn the correct material? This idea of learning for the grades is really mystifying to me. I do understand how important it is. I understand that. But learning for the grades, if you're just learning for the grades, you're learning to just to do what the teacher wants you to do. And actually, that can go really south quickly. There's this whole business called Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. And it talks about the fact that the best way to go about being successful is learning for learning's sake. Want to go out and do the best that you can and learn that chapter the best that you can with the material that you've got. And the situation you've got. If you've got four other tests that week, then you can only do what you can do, but you're giving it your best effort. And you're learning for learning's sake, not for the grade. The other point to that about not learning for the grade is it's okay to fail. I think that's something that's also not really taken seriously or talked about at the Kennedy School. There's no way that you can be 100% on top of your game 100% of the time. As what you told, asked me or told me about how I'm doing right now with this craziness, yeah, I'm making mistakes. There's no doubt about it. I'm making mistakes. And I'm missing an email here or there that needs to be written. But I'm owning up to that, and I know it's, part of the, it's just part of it. I think it's important to know that people make mistakes and to be compassionate with yourself when you do make mistakes and when you do fail something or you might not get the grade that you're looking for. I think we, we've failed our student body on that on that topic. I think we're great at pushing them and, and allowing them to be, encouraging them to be overachievers, but we don't let them be compassionate with themselves about their mistakes and their failures. To go back to the growth mindset, Carol Dweck's whole idea is we have to make mistakes. The only way we learn is if we challenge ourselves and if we learn to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes, that um, if you make them, figure out what you did wrong and get it right the next time. Mistakes are important in life and important to learning. And we just have to, we have to learn to ex- accept them with grace and say, yeah, that's part of it. So um, that was, I'm sorry, I've gone on a huge dialogue here. But that's the one point. Um, you have to stop learning for the grade. The second thing is time management. I am convinced that 60% of your success at the Kennedy School is being able to manage your own time. And what I suggest, really concrete, is to um, get a big picture of what's going on. And that means, like, print, print out from your computer the month's calendar and put on, on your calendar all of the, the due dates, the test dates, the birthdays, the days off, all that stuff on the calendar. Then you see, oh, my gosh, in two weeks, it's going to be a wave of test projects. It's going to be a killer week. But seeing that big picture gives you an idea of what's coming up and how you can arrange yourself. Then start at the micro level. Do your weekly calendar, like the homework journal things that are, everybody's got, those GFK calendars are great. So keep those going. Keep that in mind with the big picture. But if you see you've got a crazy week coming up, 
get them a really, a really small, but really minute and start scheduling all of your free time and everything that's going on, like after school from three until 11, every hour, every half hour, put in when you're eating, put in when you're taking a shower, put in the calendar all the time on that hourly thing that you're doing. Highlight the free time that you've got and then plug in those things that you have to do in that hour or those 45 minutes of free time. Because what it does is in doing that, first of all, you get a, a sense of release that you know when you're going to do everything. And it gives you a sense of urgency to know, oh, I can't just blow off 45 minutes here looking at YouTube when I know I need that time to get my math homework done. So time management at the macro level and at the micro level, I think is really important. The third tip that I would have in terms of coping with academic anxiety is to to create a routine in, in how you study. It's important to find a specific place where you study and where you only study. To sit down at the desk where your computer is and where you do your gaming and your homework is a bad idea. The place, the desk where you sit down and study should be just for that. And just sitting there will be a cue to your brain. Hey, it's time to work. Now I've got to turn on my thinking brain and, and close everything off. So find a place to study and use that place to study just to study. It'll make it a lot easier. You'll be able to uh, resist the temptation to get on your phone, to get on your iPad, your tablet, whatever, or do something else. So yeah, as the academic anxiety is huge at the school, I know that. But using these three ideas will help a bit. I love your response. If you would be so kind. I have a couple of responses and a couple of questions. May I? Sure. So first, I want to second your advocacy for Carol Dweck. Like, I'm literally looking at her growth mindset book on my shelf right now. It was recommended to me as a, as a parent, but also as a, a fledgling piano player and singer and songwriter. And it's been a game changer for me. And if you're listening to this and you're scrambling to you get pen and a piece of paper. I'll link to it in the show notes. Relax. We're on it. Carol Dweck has changed a lot of lives, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And every, I mean, athletes, kids at school, I mean, she's, her ideas are across the board for everybody. They're wonderful. Absolutely. Speaking of books, are you aware of this book called The Good Life by Helen and Scott Naring? No, no. They were early back to the landers in the 1930s. They were sort of, you know, New York City socialites who gave up on that life and lifestyle. And they went upstate. I think they later went to Vermont, if memory serves. And they decided they were going to live off the land. And they chronicled this husband and wife team, their metamorphosis from being urbanites and socialites to being... Oh. farmers, really. And the one thing they describe in some detail in the book, not unlike the descriptions that Henry David Thoreau offered when he went up to Walden Pond, was how one of the great keys, not just to success, really, but to, to joy and happiness is to developing a systematic plan of attack. Mm-hmm. Each day when you wake up for each day, week, month, and then actively and earnestly pursuing those goals one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. And that we have these really romantic notions of 
what happiness is or what sparks joy. But for most of us in most cases, not only will developing this plan of attack, as you say, help to reduce some of the anxiety, unromantically, perhaps it creates joy. Like we feel good when we set a goal and we work assiduously towards that goal and in the best circumstances achieve it. But even when we don't achieve it, feels good to do it, right? That's what the studies show. Isn't that the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. I might add, though, setting a goal is not an easy, easy task either. Um, I find that a lot of the kids that I see, the amount of work that they think they're going to get done at a certain time is way off from the reality, that they tend to set goals or set, well, when I say setting goals, I mean, like, what are they going to accomplish on day X? Am I going to get through a chapter of physics outlined in an afternoon or will I need the weekend? And I think that kids tend to be a little bit over-optimistic about what they can achieve. I I think it's more important for kids to assume that they're going to get less done in the amount of time that they've got than they're going to get more more done. So underestimate what you can do in that amount of time than overestimate. Um, Because I think a lot of people, they overestimate how much they can get done in a set amount of time. Well, you know, I, I, know I, I know you're sharing this with adolescents, but I feel like you're speaking to me as someone who has three podcasts in the throes <laughs> of recording an album, is almost done with a documentary film and uh, has a kid and a full-time job. Yeah, I got to I gotta be a little more mindful of that, don't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably. So I'll take your advice. Well, that's, but that, that's where the anxiety comes in because you're like, oh my gosh, it's not done. What am I going to do now? My whole plan, my whole plan is ruined now. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. My, my thing is called the midlife crisis, and I, I'm pretty much willing <laughs> to succumb to it. Um, so I know my students will harangue me in the hallways if I don't push back a little bit on the first thing you said. About the grades. Yep. Now, yep. I'm with you, and every teacher will, you know... They'll do the dance and talk about the nefarious role that grades play in our schools and on our families. And I'm not going to push back too hard. I'll just say the thing and give you a chance to respond. Okay. And the thing, of course, is that grades matter, particularly in grades 11 and 12 in the Abitur program, particularly in grades 9 through 12 in the Diploma program, Grades really matter, and to some degree, and not in substantial degree, as a composite, students' grades indicate their level of academic development. Note I said to some degree. Yeah. So let me just push the first part of that to you. I'm not trying to push too hard. Here's the question. What do you say to students who would say to you, I like the way you're talking, but in the real world, my grades actually matter quite a bit? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to argue, Matt, about the importance of grades. I think my point is, is that you are more likely to do a better job and in the end effect to get a better grade if you decide to have the attitude of, 
I'm not going to learn to spit back and give exactly what the teacher wants to hear. I'm going to learn because I enjoy that class or I want to understand what's going on in physics or I need to understand what's going on with physics and I'm not just going to learn to get the grade. I really want to understand that. And as opposed to saying from the start, I have to get a one. I have to get a one or have to at least get a two. I can't get anything below a two on physics this semester. I just have to get a two. I think when you, when you concentrate just on getting that two and everything around it is, is just about how I'm going to get that grade, you lose sight of what, what your task at hand is. Your task at hand is not to get the two. Your task at hand is really to understand what's going on in the physics class and to understand what exactly that concept is that they're talking about. It's not about the grade. And I think the tail wags the dog a little bit too much. Some of the kids are just going for the grade and they're taking the shortcuts to get the grades and doing whatever it takes to get the grade. But in the end, they might be unhappy with their grade because they went about it the wrong way. I must admit, when I was in high school, I was learning for the grade as well. And I find it, it is very difficult. It's a very subtle difference what I'm talking about. Well, going back to Carol Dweck, it's the idea of put your best effort forth. It's not about the grade. And if you accept that, if you accept that you're going to learn the best that you can, but given the situation that you're in, I think that you will, A, be more relaxed and less anxious about your learning, and B, you'll be more effective in your learning. Those are the two points. To do it without this anxiety of, of being fixated on this grade, and to do it with an attitude of, I have to put forth as much effort as I can, given the situation I'm in. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, so much so that I feel obliged to add a, a third point. And I find myself soapboxing about this in front of my students. And if you're a student of mine and you're listening to this, sorry, you're about <laughs> to hear it again. <laughs> because I think there's something critically important about finding joy in the process and being proud of what you learned. My favorite thing to do when I was a high school student was to study. My classes were hit or miss. I, I loved some subjects and not others. Most teachers I found to be at best mediocre. I found most teachers to be good people. Most of my teachers didn't animate me. I went to a perfectly good school, very good school. In fact, I didn't connect to all of them. A lot of them were dinosaurs, a lot of teachers in their 50s and 60s when I was in high school. So classes were fine. I liked hanging out with my buddies. But what I really loved about high school was the opportunities afforded to me to think about new content, new information, new ideas. And I enjoyed walking around the block with or without a notebook in hand. I enjoyed sitting at my desk, rubbing my palms into my eyes, trying to make sense of something hitherto unknown to me. Yeah. And I think that every student in our school, by mere virtue of their being human, loves knowledge. And while it is indeed a shame when educational institutions conspire to undermine students' love of knowledge, and I know it happens, and I'm sure I've been guilty 
of perpetrating that. I hope not too often, but I'll fall on a sword or three in any conversation, and there's one. But students have to be responsible on some level for at least pursuing some joy and being proud of what they learned. You know what I say to my kids in the days leading up to major tests? I say, think about what would have happened if I gave this exam to you two or three months ago. How would you have done? Chances are most of you would have failed this exam miserably. And most of you are going to come in next class period and you're going to perform very well. All of you will demonstrate that you've learned important lessons. So just enjoy it a little bit. But instead, Heidi, and I will, I'll get off my soapbox in a second because I do want to hear your response to this. Instead, what I think happens is that there's this culture that no one in particular is responsible for. It's not the administration, it's not the teachers, it's not the Senate, it's not the students. It's this culture that we've created at the Kennedy School where the kids do a thing called work. And they speak about work as though they were working in a coal mine. Right? And I think it's because of what you're saying. They're doing it for the paycheck, the grade, the same way the coal miner is doing it for the paycheck. And what I would hope to instill in some of our students, and I sure try to instill it in the ones who are unfortunate enough to suffer through classes with me, is that if there's no joy in the process and if there's no pride in what's been learned, it's always going to feel like an anxiety-ridden uphill climb. And I thought I had a question for you. Maybe I should just ask, what do you make of that? Is there something to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the idea of the process because even if you're doing research on something and you come up and you've got a hypothesis and you do an experiment and your hypothesis wasn't confirmed, that process of going into that and learning that and going in and getting the data is still worth something. This whole idea of the process, I think, is incredibly important because at the end, it's not about the result. It really is about the process. Sitting back and enjoying the process, just as you said, the joy and pride of learning and going through that process is incredible. And that's where, I think that's where we get our feelings of efficacy, that we can do something because in that process, we are doing something. And even if the results that might not be what we wanted, like in an experiment when our, when our hypothesis isn't confirmed, that lack of confirmation is information in unto itself. And so even if at the end we do not get that one plus or whatever the, the grade is that we're fixating in, that information that we, we've learned something, we've gained something, without a doubt, we do need to take pride in that. And I do think that that is often neglected. Yeah, I'm glad we're speaking the same language. I'm inspired by what you bring to the conversation, Heidi. I really am. And I hope our listeners are too. Now, if our listeners have been sticking around with us this long, maybe we owe them this. Do you have any hot tips, if you will, for mental and emotional hygiene strategies that maybe not enough of our students or even teachers are aware of? What can we do, 
particularly in these impossibly vexing times, to feel healthy and to feel effective so that we can achieve some of the things that you've been talking about so inspiringly? The most obvious one, first of all, is sleep. Too many kids at the Kennedy School doing all-nighters or staying up until one or two in the morning trying to finish work. With sleep, and I'm talking about six to eight hours of sleep, preferably seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Sleep is where you process what you've learned. If you don't have enough sleep, it has an impact on whether or not you can access the information that you supposedly learned by that uh, late night studying. And sleep is also important in terms of how we feel. If we're not getting enough sleep, we're going to get cranky and miserable and sad. If we're not getting enough sleep the night before a test, we can't access what we have studied. And the other thing that we can't get is if we don't get enough sleep is that we start that whole cycle of procrastination all over again. Because if you stayed up all night studying for the biology test the next day, you're going to be dead tired and you're not going to be able to do work the next day and the following day so that you, you can create another situation of procrastination and staying up late all night. Sleep is vitally important. The other thing that's important, of course, is eating healthy. Although it's tempting to just study and cram with gummy bears next to your, your notes, it's good to get healthy meals during that time and to seriously eat. Don't skimp on meals. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I think, are all very important in those stressful times. Can I just pause you really quick yeah. to say sure. that I legit have a bowl of gummy bears in front of me right now, <laughs> and we're not even going to tell our listeners what time we're recording this right now, but carry on with your response. Okay. My third uh, piece of ammunition, I think, to, to help emotional hygiene is this incredible breathing exercise. It's called the 478 Breathing Exercise. And um, I would suggest watching a video by, on YouTube by Andrew Weil. He is a guru out there for alternative medicine. And I'm not talking about hocus-pocus esoteric stuff. I'm talking about alternative medicine that's been evaluated and has proven to be effective. He is, was a, or is a, a professor at the Harvard Medical School. So he's got both an MD and an advocate for alternative medicine. He teaches people how to do this breathing exercise called 478. It's very simple. You breathe into the count of four, you hold it for seven seconds, and you breathe out at the count of eight. And if you practice that twice a day over six weeks, it will be amazing. You'll be able to sleep much better, fall asleep easier. He claims it's better than any anti-anxiety tablet out there. So it's a two-minute exercise. Do it twice a day, maybe after school and before you go to bed. It's a game changer. It's amazing. I can send you the link for you to add to the podcast or to put in the journal if you'd like, but it is amazing. So I go in and out of my commitment to 478 breathing, but I'm with you on Dr. Weil. We'll link to him in the show notes. Kids, you got to trust the bald, gray-bearded folks. I'm one of them, Andrew Weil. You know, just, we, we, we're the people who have figured out, if only that were true. <laughs> you know, Heidi, speaking of the dominant voices of the gray-bearded men like Dr. Weil and myself, one thing that we didn't dive into in our discussion is the disproportionate impact 
of the effect of the pandemic and our overall age of anxiety on Black, Indigenous, people of color, the BIPOC community. Mm-hmm. Part of the idea's mission, you know, identity, diversity, empathy, awareness, and service. That's what we stand for. You know, part of the idea's mission is to add value to the marketplace of ideas vis-a-vis diversity. It's surely the case that communities of color and generally underserved communities have been facing the ill effects of this pandemic much worse than many of the people that we know. And I was hoping you might give some insight into that desperately terrible reality. Daniel, I agree with you. I think that there is a huge part of the population of kids out there that are completely underserviced and are having a difficult time accessing services. It's um, not even a matter of them accessing, but are they accessing the help that they need and getting the understanding that they need? I think to be a BIPOC kid in these times, with all the turbulence that's going on in the United States and in the world for that matter, is incredibly difficult. And my heart goes out to them because I'm, I think it would be a very difficult situation for them to go through right now. I think the, the events that happened this summer and what they're experiencing and what's going on politically in the United States right now, I think it's very difficult to be a BIPOC kid and very difficult on top of everything else going on with the COVID to have to grapple with losing voter rights the whole Floyd case. There's just one incident after another. What's going on in Canada with the kids in the schools? There's a whole bunch of information that's coming out that the BIPOC kids have to deal with in terms of their identity and what's going on in their world, in their reality, that has absolutely nothing to do with COVID, that just amplifies the stresses and anxieties that they must be experiencing at this point. And I think that these problems are not just problems of kids in North America, but also the experiences that BIPOC kids here in our own community are experiencing. There is no doubt that to be a BIPOC kid, even in the Kennedy School, um, these kids are experiencing issues that only they can experience and, and grappling with issues that the rest of the mainstream probably will not be grappling with. Yeah, I hear you, Heidi, and I know that you're an ally to all young people, regardless of race, class, ethnicity, religion, gender, sexuality, you name it, you're an ally, and I know that you're keenly aware that communities of color are hit that much more hard by COVID, by the economic situation that stresses so many families And it's such a robust and impossible conversation. Perhaps we can get you back on the podcast another time to dive deeper into those problematics. I've kept you longer than we had scheduled, and I'm so grateful that you've been so patient with me. And, you know, I even wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about some of the other issues that are coming up in the next issue of our journal. But I should respect your time, right? We began this conversation talking about how overwhelmed your workload is. Far be it for me to make it that much worse. But if I may be so bold, I do have one last question. It's almost a request. Would you please walk us out by offering in closing 
just a message to some of these frustrated, stressed out kids at the Kennedy School? What do you feel they really need to hear right now? I think the most important thing to know is that regardless of what's going on, regardless of whatever the problem is, whatever the stress is, whatever the issue is, there is always a solution. There is always a solution. And all you have to do is look for the right people to talk to. It's just a matter of asking the right people and finding somebody that you trust to talk to and help get some ideas of how to solve the problem. But there, again, is always a solution. Yeah, one thing that this pandemic has fostered, and I hope this might be the saving grace of it all, the silver lining, if there's one to be seen, there seems to be a greater space for empathic dialogue about people's feelings. And there's more of a space and a language for grace. And I've been really heartened by that. And I will say that I think the way you contribute to and participate in meaningful dialogues that are empathic and graceful and kind and nurturing is a source of great inspiration. And I really hope, Heidi, that you can weather this storm because our community really needs you healthy, strong, and with us. So please do take care. And thank you for all you do for our community. Thank you for being here on the Ideas Podcast. We say that the Ideas Pod is a place to share in safe but challenging dialogues, and you definitely brought that. So thanks a million for being here. Thank you. I totally appreciate it. Thank you. So on behalf of the Ideas Club, that was me in conversation with Heidi Hooper Amory. She brought it. She brought the energy. She brought the ideas. Tony, she was great. You should have been there. You would have loved it. Yeah, you speak so highly of her. I guess I really should have. <laughs> well, you'll be able to listen to the podcast, and I know that you will. Okay. Hey, um, one thing that I forgot to ask her to do, but she sort of inadvertently did anyway, was to give us an endorsement or two. Would you like me to tell you what her endorsements were? Sure thing. It's an idea staple. She recommended Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. And she also endorsed 478 Breathing as recommended by Dr. Andrew Weil. Do you know this Andrew Weil character? The name does sound familiar, but you'll have to enlighten me. Have you heard of the 478 Breathing thing? No. All right, we're going to do it together. So here's what you do. You breathe in for four seconds. You hold it for seven. And then you exhale for eight. You ready to do it? We'll do it together. And we're going to see it. And you're supposed to do it for two minutes. We'll just do one round. See how it feels. Are you ready? All right. Here we go. All right. How are you feeling? I think I'm lightheaded, bro. I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> that was your exercise for the day, right? Mm-hmm. I thought you'd been hitting the gym, man. So Heidi endorsed 
Carol Dweck, and Andrew Weil, and I'll link to those in the show notes. Tony, your endorsements, I shouldn't say it out loud, they're always the best endorsements. I know you got one. What's it going to be? Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Um, is, is it okay if I plug another podcast? Is it one of mine? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... It it goes along with the ideas mission, and it's uh, it's something I I look into every now and then. Upstream podcast is a very fun and very progressive, and goes along well with ideas principles. All right, we'll link to it in the show notes. I didn't think of an endorsement. Oh, so I rarely get to endorse on this podcast, and I couldn't begin to tell you the number of times I wanted to contribute an endorsement. And while I'm tempted to endorse one of my other podcasts. We don't do that self-promo on ideas. Come on. I know. I won't. Not even faculty advisor gets that kind of pass. I wouldn't. I couldn't. And I won't. Um, But I will say that in a forthcoming episode of another podcast that I host, I did what I'm almost convinced will be a life-changing interview for me with a poet and a professor of poetry, a buddy of mine called Josh Weiner. And for the last month or two since I had that conversation with Josh, I've been inspired. I've been reading a lot of poetry, and I've gone back to some of the poets that moved me years ago resuscitating my love for some. And one poet that has been speaking to me lately is the Harlem Renaissance poet Claude McKay. He's a a Jamaican-American writer, born in Jamaica, died in my fair city of Chicago. And I've just been obsessing over Claude McKay poems for weeks. I got to tell you, Tony, I'm tempted to read one but I don't know if I have the moxie for it. I'm sure you'll do fine. Should I? I mean, go ahead. I mean, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not half as well-read as I am well-spoken, so <laughs> I think uh, I'll leave that up to you. I believe that is, by definition, the humble brag. It is indeed. <laughs> In that order. So, okay, hold on. Let me pull one up real quick. There's one that I... um. Uh, It's a poem that Claude McKay wrote in 1919. In the history of American race relations, 1919 is an important year. It's been called the Red Summer. There were a number of so-called race riots, most of which were met with brutal force by governments. And this poem is called If We Must Die, If we must die, if we must die, let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, 
though far outnumbered, let us show us brave. And for their thousand blows, deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. Wowee. Yeah. Kids, get your paws on some Claude McKay. It's all free online. Tony, Ideas has a lot going on right now. As you said at the head of the episode, this is the second of a three-part podcast series on mental health, mental wellness, and neuroatypical life at the Kennedy School, right? Of course, of course. We got the journal coming out this week, next week. You got any news on that? We like to keep such things on the wraps. It's a, a mystery. It's a surprise release. It'll be soon. Lena Sitar is working on it. She's the cat's pajamas. Her WhatsApp handle is life is short and so am I. You ever notice that? Quite witty. I, I mean, it's accurate. <laughs> witty and accurate. This <laughs> if is I what may we, say so myself. Yeah, hey, this is what we've been saying about Lena for a long time. Witty and accurate. So we got the three podcasts. We got the journal. You were part of this. Hey, tell the people what you did. Well, my part, I examined invisible disabilities. And as the name implies, it focuses on all the invisible. Uh, hey, what, you implies, know, what, um, it focuses on all the disabilities that are. Hold on. I was. Oh, we want, okay. Go ahead and do that. And then I'm going to ask you to do something else. So you say, I, so yeah, man, I contributed an article. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I contributed an article. Um, my article focused on invisible disabilities, uh, those disabilities being ones that, as the name apply, are unapparent at first glance. These include physical as well as neurological disabilities. And it's quite a complex matter as there's lots of social stigma that surrounds it. And uh, a, a common thing people who suffer with invisible disabilities face is... Um, not being believed or having trouble being diagnosed in the first place, especially young ones, as it pertains to learning disabilities. So yeah, it's quite the uh, quite the controversial issue. But in recent years, more light has been shown on the subject, and with this journal, we hope to promote the dialogue. Dude, you're Mister Ideas. You're on the podcast. You're in the journal, and you were in the elementary classroom just recently, right? Tell the people what you did. Well, just like we said a couple episodes ago, we are, we did a class on Thanksgiving, and we talked to the kids about well, some of the real ins and outs of the holiday, showed them some American history, and really it was just a great moment of coming together as we weren't there to demonize the holiday, but instead to show how it can be celebrated whilst also acknowledging it's quite troubled history. But all in all, we had a great time, and the kids loved it that we had candy and it was great. It was really great. The kids loved it. And you weren't there, but there was another group of ideas, kids that went into the third grade classrooms, had a real sweet Hanukkah celebration. Of course, there was candy too, but there was just this effort to create some space to celebrate together. I know everyone's languishing a little bit, as they say, but there's still room to celebrate, right, Tony? Can't we have a little joy? Well, there should be. And I feel that Ideas actually does quite a good job of at least trying to provide that output. 
as our club continues to thrive and put out journals and grow as well, I feel that we can brighten up people's days a bit more. Hey, Tony Aldani, you know what brightens up my day? There's me in it. Yup. That's what I thought. <laughs> Tony Aldani sparks joy. There's no two ways about it. I hope you listen to this podcast when it comes out, Tony. Thanks for helping me to set it up and walk it out. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I know I kept you up a little bit later, uh, but you know, I want to do my part to contribute to stress and anxiety. So here I am. Thank you. Faculty director, ideas founder, Mr. Lazar. You know, you're always welcome on the podcast, even though, you know, it's yours. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) You can catch us in the next episode. It'll be our final episode in the mental health trilogy we'll be talking with jfks school counselors to hear their take on the matter it's an exciting episode bella will be there as well see you then see you tony bye that's a wrap